Welcome to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. Tonight in the podcast, we are talking psoriasis, hypertension, hate speech, and adult ADHD. The Sunday Night Health Show podcast starts now. And now, Maureen's Health Headline. Yesterday, Saturday, October 29th, was World Psoriasis Day. It's a timely opportunity to address what is a debilitating lifelong condition that can cause painful flare-ups for people. Dr. Lauren Albrecht is a board-certified dermatologist who's been practicing dermatology in Surrey, British Columbia, since 1997. He's on the line to talk about the impact of psoriasis, what's new in disease care, and highlight the need for greater diversity in dermatology. Good evening, Dr. Albrecht. Hey, good evening, Maureen. It's my uh, pleasure to be uh, speaking with you tonight because I really do feel it's it's time for awareness of this condition and uh, what's better than talking about it uh, just the day after World Psoriasis Day. I think we have to keep the conversation going. You know, there's a lot of like October's of this awareness month or this is this particular day, but we can't just talk about these conditions on those days. And and I like to keep the dialogue going. I appreciate you being on the air. Now, psoriasis is more than skin deep. What exactly is psoriasis? So psoriasis is a chronic inflammatory condition. It, it, it obviously presents with skin manifestations. And so there are scaling, you know, dry, flaking uh, lesions, plaques on the skin, which often are very uncomfortable. Uh, one of the primary concerns of patients is the itch and skin discomfort associated with the lesions. But above and beyond, just like you said, it's more than skin deep. It's the manifestations uh, that, that go, uh, you know, within as well as the outward manifestations. So, uh, your your lead into the show mentioned mental, physical, emotional, and sexual health, and that actually those those areas that uh, psoriasis touches on all of those because of the, you know, the stigmatization, the um, <clears throat> the sense that patients have um, difficulty with social interpersonal relationships. The the uh, mental disease burden, the we, we call them comorbidities, so things like arthritis, uh, even cardiovascular disease, diabetes have a higher prevalence with psoriasis. So, so really, this concept that psoriasis is just a skin disease, I think, has uh, has really been been shown to be outdated and and inappropriate. Yeah, it's time to move on from that. I was even surprised when I was doing a little research on this segment that over 50% of Canadians who suffer with psoriasis have difficulty with activities of daily living. That was shocking yeah. to me. Yeah, and why it, it, is it that? Is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Why is that? I, again, I think it's one of these conditions that, you know, I call it the hidden disease. I, I mean, people will, you know, for instance, when I, you know, have dealt with someone who's been dealing with with uh, severe psoriasis for many years and we've got them on a therapy that leads to essentially complete clearance you know they talk about it as freedom they talk about it as the first time they've been to the beach in 15 years or you know mm-hmm. uh, you know being able to go at the swimming pool with their kids and so i, I think it's that that as- that aspect of you know the impact on their their social and interpersonal relationships that really does impact uh, patients because they're they're embarrassed of these skin, they're, they're of these skin eruptions, I mean, this, if you will. This mm-hmm. idea of stigmatization, this idea that you know people worry that it's a it's communicable or contagious, or there's something you know there's something wrong with them, and so you know again it, it leads to the the sense of, as mentioned the, the you know what it, what I call the, the the hidden disease, and and uh, patients will often suffer in silence, and I think the 
the great part about World Psoriasis Day and what you just mentioned about it being every day is that we don't have to suffer in silence anymore. We do have effective therapies. We do have ways to manage this condition very effectively and safely. It's just so awful to me that people would stigmatize somebody or exclude somebody or, you know, be fearful that they're going to catch this, um, you know, to do that to another person. I just don't, I just can't even get my head around that. It's just so, it's just so mean, you know, it's, it's just so, it's so ignorant and, and mean. And, and there's nothing more than that. It's difficult to navigate interpersonal relationship and friendships you know, you have sensitive people, you might say something, they might have a perception, they might lose their cool and, you know, Mm -hmm. end a relationship. Like it's so Mm -hmm. hard, you know, just even being in relationships with people because, you know, never mind if somebody has the added burden of psoriasis. Absolutely, Maureen. I mean, I I always sort of give the example of a, a friend of mine who suffered from uh, severe psoriasis for, for quite some period of time and then was able to participate in a clinical research trial and get on a therapy that led to complete clearance. And then um, for various reasons, there she was told that this, the trial might be ending and she wouldn't be able to access the therapy. And she kind of called me in a panic and said, I, I can't go back to being a monster again. You know, I mean, uh, that's the impact. That's the sense that... Right you know, you, you, you get the sense that they've, they've tasted freedom and to take that away would just be, a, you know, a, a, an incredible hardship for the patient. So, so that I think kind of, it's, it's always, I always use that example to illustrate the impact yeah. that it has on people and their relationships and how other people perceive psoriasis as yeah. a disease. Uh, the real monsters are, are the awful people who, you know, feel they're perfect in every sure. way and are probably sure. hiding a lot of imperfections themselves. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, now I know psoriasis can impact people at different ages, but what, what are some of the risk factors for psoriasis? Who's likely to get psoriasis? Well, you know, clearly Maureen, there's a, there's a genetic basis. And so, you know, we mm-hmm. talk about if you have one parent with psoriasis, there's maybe a 40%, two, cha- two parents with 60% plus chance. So clearly there's a genetic basis, but we really don't understand the exact triggers. We do know there are common ages of onset. So for instance, in the late teens, early 20s, and then again, maybe in the 40s and 50s. But psoriasis mm-hmm. can happen at any age. It can happen to, to infants. It can happen, you know, I've seen psoriasis presenting for the first time in an 80-year-old. So, so you know, these are mm-hmm. genetic pathways that are there, and then they get right. triggered. And, and we don't understand all the triggers, but we certainly do, you know, have really made huge progress uh, understanding the pathways and mechanisms that lead to psoriasis. My guest is board-certified dermatologist, Dr. Lauren Albrecht. He has been practicing dermatology in Sur- Surrey, British Columbia, since 1997. Thank you so much for staying on the line. We're talking mm. about psoriasis. Yesterday was World Psoriasis Day. We need to continue these conversations. Dr. Albrecht, why is it that people with color living with psoriasis often experience a delay in diagnosis and ultimately care? Um, You know, skin of color, I I think it's not necessarily the disease is more prevalent or, uh, I mean, access might be different, but I think one aspect where we really have to to focus on with skin of color, and I, I have a sizable South Asian population in my practice in Surrey is this is this process of what we call post-inflammatory pigment. So this leads to darkening and discoloration of the skin even long after the psoriasis is gone or as part of the psoriasis process. 
So, I, I mean, I think we're, in fact, we're actually doing a research study right now, just looking at that, uh, at that association and seeing what kind of impact it really has on patients with skin of color, uh, because that's really never been looked at before. Very interesting. And I would imagine it would make it harder for them, especially in their um, quality of life. Now, if somebody out there is listening and they're experiencing this, uh, what are some of the treatments? What would you say to somebody out there who is suffering with psoriasis? And, and my, I have another question first, though. Are there yeah. triggers for flare-ups um, of psoriasis? Are there things yeah, we, that trigger it? Yeah. So we, we talked about, you know, again, there being a genetic basis and then some sort of aspects of environmental triggers. Now, I mean, there's always been a, a, a known association with things like like streptococcal uh, throat infections triggering off forms of psoriasis. Mm-hmm. Um, but ultimately, uh, you know, and then, and then there's, there's the tie in with 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 stress and, and uh, mm-hmm. you know, immune functions related to, to stress that, that certainly seems to flare psoriasis. But but ultimately, Maureen, we, we really don't understand all the triggers. You know, we, we know mm-hmm. what happens and how it happens, but we don't nece- necessarily know why. Um, right. I, I think you, yeah, you asked about what should, should Canadians know, what should patients know? And I think the, the mm-hmm. biggest message I could get across is that, you know, don't give up. We, we have, you know, treatments that have shown, I mean, we've, we've had great advances in the last uh, 10 to 15 years in psoriasis treatment. And, you know, and as such, I, I think, you know, really the, the biggest challenge we have right now is access, you know, access to um, these therapies, which are, which are often given as injections are called biologic therapies for moderate mm-hmm. to severe disease which unfortunately are very expensive, you know, and so we have a lot of issues with respect to access, let alone the more global issue of access to specialty care. I mean, I could, we could talk for hours just about the the issues Canadians face in accessing both primary care and specialty care as a deficiency. And, you know, the, um, I I can give actually a a, a few references if patients want to, if people want to jot these down in terms of web resources and and such uh, that they can go. That would be great. Yeah, I'll, I'll do that. Um, and then I, you know, again, once, you know, with, with, usually psoriasis is not a diagnostic dilemma. I mean, once we've identified it, we, we know what we're dealing with. It really is ex- accessing appropriate and effective care. That, that really is the biggest challenge. Mm-hmm. And, and what are some of those resources? We only have about a minute left or so. Yeah, so I, I could I, talk I to you for hours about this yeah, as well. Unfortunately, <laughs> they only um, give me a certain I'll, amount I'll of time. These, I'll, give these, I'll give these really quickly and then, and then really just a quick summary. So, so the Canadian psoriasis network.com and then Canadian psoriasis.ca. This is, these are Canadian associations that give really valuable information to patients. There's also a U.S.-based organization called the National Psoriasis Foundation, and that is psoriasis.org. Uh, those are really good starting points and good references for patients. I, I, I want people to know that, you know, again, we, if you have disease and, you know, it is, uh, you know, having a significant impact on, on your life, that you really do need to be seen by a dermatologist. You know, if there's more than, uh, you know, 3% of your body, where we talk about your hand is covering 1%, so you have more than three hands on your body and you're having difficulty just functioning, uh, you know, again, really, you know, see your dermatologist, get access to a dermatologist because we have, you know, significant new treatment options available nowadays. Wonderful. Thank you so much. I really appreciate all of the great information that you've provided tonight, Dr. Albrecht.
Thank you so much, Maureen. You know, I often wonder, can someone raise someone else's blood pressure? There's a lot of things that we don't understand about high blood pressure, otherwise known as hypertension. Joining me on the line to clarify some of this is Dr. Karen Tran, who is a general internist in the Division of General Internal Medicine at UBC and a clinical assistant professor with the Department of Medicine. Dr. Tran currently works as a general internist on the clinical teaching unit and hypertension clinics at Vancouver General Hospital and with obstetrical medicine at BC Women's Hospital. She's a certified hypertension specialist by the American Society of Hypertension and a member of Hypertension Canada Guideline Committee for blood pressure measurement and resistant hypertension. And her research interests include blood pressure measurement in pregnancy. That is a lot of blood pressure. Good evening, Dr. Tran. Good evening. How are you? Thank you so much for having me today. Oh, well, thank you so much for joining the program. That's a lot of blood flow there with all of the work that you do. <laughs> thank uh, but you. thank you very much. Yes. So many people suffer with hypertension. So many people go untreated. So many people decide they don't realize the numbers that they need. So I'm so happy to have you join me to talk about this subject that affects almost 8 million adults in Canada. And that's about one in four people. But my first question, I don't know if you heard it, was a little bit tongue in cheek, but you know, some people will say they raise my blood pressure. I deal a lot with relationships in my clinical practice. And I hear, you know, my spouse raises my blood pressure. She gets my blood pressure going, or he gets my blood pressure. Can someone else raise someone's blood pressure is my question. I mean, there's lots of things that can cause high blood pressure to go up. Um, Oftentimes stress is definitely one factor, but there's many other things. We know as we age, we get a more blood pressure, um, family history, or even our gender can affect our blood pressure. And there's a lot of things we can do um, to prevent high blood pressure from occurring. And you say our gender can affect our blood pressure. So is, is one sex more likely to have high blood pressure versus the other? Interestingly enough, we know that males initially have higher blood pressure. And then when women go through menopause, then their rates of high blood pressure increases even more. And so that's why it's so important for both genders, men and women, to both be aware of what their blood pressure is and get the check. Yes. Yes, there's a lot of talk. And we talked about menopause in the workplace last week. And, you know, there's a lot of talk about women not understanding, you know, what they're headed into when they're headed into, you know, during the perimenopausal years heading into menopause. But I bet that's a little known fact about that blood pressure rises uh, postmenopausally for women. Yeah, no, that, that's a really little known fact. And I think there's also lots of other facts about hypertension that the general public isn't aware of. And that's what um, Heart and Stroke Foundation is so key to kind of deliver the message that we want to promote people to know what their blood pressures are and to promote more strategies for people to be aware of what their blood pressure is. And so what is the, what's the magic number for those listening out here and wanting to know if their number was okay? I often say to patients, what's, what's your blood pressure? And they'll say, oh, it was good. And I'll say, well, what was good? And they'll be like, well, it was like, you know, they'll give me one number. <laughs> they don't even know that it's two numbers, but they might mm-hmm. say, you know, oh, I'm fine. My doctor said it's fine. I'm like 140 over 90. What is the number that um, people should aim for? So there's more and more evidence to kind of say that maybe even a lower blood pressure is better. We know generally blood pressures can change a lot. So I say it's important to measure your blood pressure consistently and not just go by one reading. 
because sometimes mm-hmm. even if you're in a stressful situation, that can rise, raise it. But I think mm-hmm. the number to go for is if you're measuring it at home or in a pharmacy, if you're getting readings above 135 as a top number, and that's what we call the systolic blood pressure, or the bottom number, which is the diastolic blood pressure more than 85, those are just things that you need to go and get checked out by your family doctor or another healthcare professional just to ensure whether or not this is really um, a true reading and reflecting hypertension. Because mm-hmm. people, when they are, you know, running around, running errands, they might sit down in that high blood pressure chair that you see in pharmacies and um, and just stick their arm in. You know, they may not wait the recommended five minutes. So people's blood pressure is going to be up a little bit when they're active and moving about. For sure. And that's why I think having more measurement in different situations and even measuring your blood pressure at home is so important Uh because blood pressure changes all the time. If we're Uh all running marathons, we're probably going to get a high blood pressure or if we're in an argument, we're going to have blood pressure. But the most important thing is to know what your trends are over time. So I always recommend measuring your blood pressure at home um, and doing it on multiple days and multiple times just so that we have a better accurate assessment of what your blood pressure is. And what should the number be at home? Would you accept a lower number or should you accept a lower number at home than in the pharmacy? So we still think that high risk blood pressure numbers are anything at home more than 135 over 85. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. Um, But if somebody is, you know, 150 over 90, 100, what, and they're being treated with medication, what would be a good blood pressure for them? That number really depends on your, their risk, but generally, again, we would want to aim for the same target to be 135 over 85. So I okay, think so it's not 120 over 80 is what I'm, no, maybe I'm not no, asking the question properly. Yeah, no, the 120 really comes from patients that are very high risk for having heart disease, and we know mm-hmm. that in those patients who have are higher risk, a lower blood pressure um, about 120 might be warranted. But for most people, a blood pressure at home about averaging 135 over 85 is what we would recommend. Okay, that is good to know. Um, so the pandemic created probably a little bit more stress for people, raising Canada's blood pressure that much more. And according to a survey done by the Heart and Stroke Foundation, 7 in 10 Health professionals are worried that Canadians are developing high blood pressure at an earlier age than previously. Tell me a little bit about that. What age can one expect their blood pressure to go up if they're a male, for example? And and what happened during the pandemic? The the pandemic obviously caused a a lot of disruptions to people's lives. And one thing is um, blood pressure. And there's many reasons why we think this may have happened. Um, obviously, with there's an extraordinary amount of stress people were under. People were probably not as active and like were more sedentary because of social isolation. People were maybe not eating as healthy and having more processed foods. And we also know that alcohol intake really increased during the pandemic. So all these factors oh. can have raised blood pressure during the pandemic. And also the fact that we really didn't have the same access to, to care um, there was a lot more virtual care happening, and people may not have been going to see their family doctors or other healthcare professionals and getting their blood pressure checked out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think a lot of people, um, their health suffered during the pandemic. 
Um, I didn't realize that. I mean, I knew at the beginning of the pandemic, there were lots of, you know, um, posts on Instagram of all sorts of different cocktails and, you know, um, I can't, there was, anyway, there was a term for it that's escaping my mind right now, but, um, but I didn't realize that was sustained through the pandemic that the alcohol consumption increased. Yeah, no, I think there's a, a, people are like probably trying to cope in many different ways. And we know some of these, um, poor lifestyle choices, um, have raised blood pressures. And that's what our survey from heart and stroke really show that physicians are really worried that this trend is long lasting and um, that people's blood pressures will be higher because of the pandemic for these reasons. Wow. I did not, I, I honestly did not realize that. Um, and so lifestyle is a huge contributing factor to increasing one's the risk um, of somebody's having an increased blood pressure. What are some of those lifestyle risks that can increase somebody's blood pressure? Um, so we know that as patient, um, people are not active, so leading very like sedentary lifestyles that can increase your blood pressure. Um, not eating um, fruits and vegetables and or a healthy diet can also raise it. Um, not having, mm-hmm. having a lot of salt or processed foods can also dramatically increase your blood pressure. And we know that um, alcohol um, intake can increase your blood pressure as well. So we always recommend having um, limiting to small amounts of alcohol if possible. And stress is a big factor as well. And, and we all have stress. It's really how we manage stress. Mm-hmm, for sure. 100%. Right. It's sort of some, someone's approach, you know, somebody's attitude about it. And, you know, staying silent doesn't necessarily mean that like somebody who loses it, loses control and, you know, um, is yelling, you know, that's their response to stress versus somebody who stays silent. I was talking about this with a patient in my office this week um, they had gotten blasted by somebody who has a drinking issue, to be honest <laughs> with mm-hmm, you, mm-hmm. and um, and was drunk at the time um, and just completely lost it on them. And they remained silent. And, you know, they that's their typical response is is not to respond. And mm-hmm. and so that's that's not necessarily the healthiest way to be either for people who can't find their voice that might cause stress for certain people. Would you agree with that? For sure. And I think like one of the things we know um, for kind of treating hypertension is really trying to manage your stress levels, depending on whatever strategy works for you can really be beneficial. My guest is Dr. Karen Tran, and we are talking hypertension because she is a certified hypertension specialist by the American Society of Hypertension, amongst other things. Thanks so much for staying on the line, Dr. Tran. My pleasure. What What are some of the treatments for hypertension? We talked about some of the risk factors. What are some of the treatments? And let's start with the most conservative. What can people do before they need to go on medication? There are many, many um, healthy behaviors that people can do to really bring down their blood pressure. Things I always recommend are being active, um, walking at least 30 minutes five times a week, trying to be really healthy in terms of the diet and eating things that are lots of fruits and vegetables, um, whole grains, low-fat protein, um, and also really trying to cut down processed food and salt. 
um, not drinking um, alcohol and really cutting down on smoking are really effective tools in um, managing blood pressure. How about diet sodas or sodas in general? Are they, um, and basically sugar, does sugar um, create an inflammatory response and raise blood pressure? Yeah, and obviously we want to definitely avoid all sugary drinks as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and and then in terms of managing stress, also what are what are some of some ways that people can manage stress? I know you mentioned exercise, but you know mindfulness, cognitive mindfulness, behavioral yeah, therapy, that yeah, type there's, of thing. There's been studies to show that mindfulness and cognitive behavioral therapies has been the strategies to actually bring down stress and to help improve blood pressure as well. So I think just for the for the person who has um, high blood pressure and stress, really trying to figure out what's the best tool and best strategies for them to kind of reduce it. And, and can people actually bring down um, their blood pressure um, by you know over time by implementing these strategies and, and actually avoid medication? For sure, I have many people in my practice who've been able to lose an amount huge amount of weight and they've been Mm -hmm. don't need to have blood pressure medications and making these dietary changes a lot of the things i suggested can bring down your blood pressure anywhere from five to ten millimeters of mercury which is almost as good as one blood pressure pill so i really encourage people to do all this healthy lifestyle we know that like just even losing 10 10 kilos can be the same as being on one blood pressure pill that is just incredible. Now, you mentioned salt. And, you know, how bad is salt for a person's blood pressure? And, and how much salt should somebody use? Um, salt is, can be really triggering for lots of people with um, their blood pressure just because um, it causes people to retain a lot of fluid and salt, and that can really bring up their blood pressure. Um, there are certain populations that tend to happen more for this, and this tends to be like the older population, people who have known kidney disease, um, black ethnicity can be really, really sensitive to salt. Um, what I usually recommend is trying to do less than two grams of salt per day, and that's really hard. But trying to do reading food labels can be really helpful, or even switching to like low-sodium alternatives. So I, I personally love sushi, and I um, mm-hmm. there's a lot of soy Soy sauce has a lot of salt in it. So I just usually recommend to my patients to try taking low-sodium soy sauce instead, and that can help um, help decrease that. For someone who doesn't add a lot of salt to their diet, or any salt to their diet, (laughs) I really don't salt anything. That's one thing I notice <laughs> the salt missing yeah, from no, is, for the, sure. is and, the soy and when we sauce cook our own foods, we can really control how much salt we add but it's just when we're eating the processed foods things from a can microwave foods that's when the salt really is in much higher numbers and like we're really not able to control how much we take in right right i, I actually saw somebody at a dinner party take the salt cap off and because it didn't come out fast enough when there was, you know, <laughs> and they took the cap off and poured the salt on that way. <laughs> anyway, oh my gosh. they're heading for trouble. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think they had a few too many drinks too. No mm-hmm. <laughs> risk factors. So what are the, mm-hmm. some of the medications um, and that are used and are there side effects for those medications? Um, there's many um, cheap and effective medications that bring down blood pressures. 
Um, many of them work by different mechanisms. Um, the most common ones I usually use are things called ACE inhibitors or androtensin receptor blockers. Um, I also use calcium channel blockers and um, I use thiazide diuretics. It's like my, my go-to in terms of blood pressure lowering. Um, mm-hmm. Oftentimes, these medications are really well tolerated, but sometimes people can get some side effects like cough, can get some side effects of like swelling um, or changes in their electrolytes or renal function. And th- those are all things that we can um, prevent and check for and be really diligent to prevent any of these side effects. Just because there's so many medications out there, we can definitely find the right combination that works for the individual patient. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's very important to control one's blood pressure because obviously they can lower their risk of stroke. And that, that can sure, be life yeah. And we know that treating, um, treating blood pressure is probably the, the best way to prevent having a stroke or for having heart disease. Yeah, I had and a patient one time with who... unfortunately, with the population, like, although Canada has been a really great leader in blood pressure control, over the past mm-hmm. 10 years, our control rates and um, treatment rates has really declined. Yeah, yeah. I, I had a patient one time who was afraid to get treated for their blood pressure, and they ultimately had a stroke and died. Um, mm-hmm. But they, they didn't want to, their blood pressure was up and around, you know, 180s, over 120 mm-hmm. 200 for a sustained period of time. Anyway, I really appreciate you coming on the show tonight to talk about this very important subject, Dr. Karen Tran. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. You got questions? She's got answers. The nurse is in for Nurse Talk. Welcome back to the Sunday, the second hour of the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. If you have any questions or comments, the number to call or text 1-877-399-9898. Joining me on the line, you've heard her voice before. She is a medical doctor in wellness and performance. She empowers people to live their best lives and prevent overwhelm so they can increase productivity in the workplace. She's leverage-based leadership, and she's a speaker, trainer, and writer. She is Dr. Tomi Mitchell, and she joins me on the line. Good evening, Dr. Mitchell. Good evening, Maureen. How are you doing tonight? I am doing great, and you? I'm doing very well, thank you so much. It's been quite the week this week. I mean, there's been a lot of disdain and hatred, and um, but you know, we're seeing little bits of light, but um, also a, a subject that you and I talked a little bit about this week. Um, if anyone who has not been living under a rock knows that Elon Musk closed the deal with, with Twitter, it's no longer a publicly traded company. It's a private company. And, um, with that, um, racist tweets have quickly surfaced after he closed the deal because a lot of anonymous Twitter accounts celebrated Musk takeover thinking it meant the old rules against bigotry no longer applied. How disturbing is this? It is extremely disturbing. Um, you know, just within 12 hours, reports that over like a, an increase in racist slurs, hate speech by almost 500% after Elon took over. So it's very disturbing when you look at what's been happening in our world this past, I would say, four to five years, especially. Um, just the increase in hate crimes among, among vulnerable people, um, racial groups, ethnic origin, it's, it's disgusting. And 
I feel like we're in for another roller coaster. Uh, we certainly are. And this, this flood, this barrage of racist posts is, you know, it's really quite the significant sign of how Twitter had changed, you know, fairly immediately after Musk took over this whole free speech thing, you know, just throws uh, any decorum, respect, compassion, kindness, inclusion, I mean, on this platform, out the window. I, I, I have seen a lot of people who have said they're going to close their Twitter account or, you know, or they're going to wait and see what happens. Some are giving him a chance. But, I mean, you know, our world is just really deteriorating rapidly. 100%. And, frankly, this rash of racist comments has been hiding under the surface. These cowards hide behind false anonymous um, profiles. Some of them are bold and actually put their face down, but the majority of them are cowards because deep inside they know what they're doing is wrong, but for whatever reason, they perpetuate this hate. And it just came out because, again, they feel liberated because maybe they feel like they're not going to be restricted from being a terrible human being. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's just a lot of people who don't feel good about themselves and, and they want to put out other people's light for their darkness. I mean, I can, I can only imagine, and I can only imagine that hiding behind some, uh, you know, a false account or, you know, a, a name that isn't theirs, you know, just shows that they're cowards, that they lack the courage to actually stand up for what they you know, think that they believe in, or, or maybe they're attention seeking, maybe they're mentally ill. I mean, I don't know what, um, and that's not to say people with mental illness do this, but there obviously is something wrong with people who, you know, are posting these racial slurs, uh, you know, on, on a public platform. 100%. They are definitely insecure about themselves. Largely. Um, they, when they look at someone and can spew out so much hate, it's a reflection of themselves. And to your point about mental health and being mean, you can be mean and have mental health challenge. Classic example is Kanye West. You know, he definitely mm-hmm. has a you know, medical illness, but he's also mean. So That's that, right. They don't have to be joined. They can be two separate things, you know. So and you can have mental oh, and illness his and be comments. a very nice person. Yeah. Yeah. And his comments were just appalling. I mean, I mean, just absolutely abhorrent. And, you know, I was so glad that those major sponsors actually pulled. We need people to stand up. That's the problem. You know, people let others get away with this, whether it's the mean girl in high school or the mean girl who turns mean wife, you know, in the suburbs and is mean to all the, you know, the women. Um, Or, you know, these mean girls carry on even in their fifties and sixties and seventies, you know, I've, I've heard stories and, um, you know, it's that they, you know, it's, it's a self-esteem issue, I I think. And so we need to focus, other people need to stand up, speak up about it, speak up against it and, you know, have their, their voices heard, whether it be through, um, sponsorships or, you know, but money typically talks, you know, and I was very happy to see that, those sponsorships were pulled from Kanye West. Um, you know, when he, when he, his anti Semite rants, which were just horrific. Um, but there's a worry about Elon Musk as well, because, you know, he's erratic 
And, you know, yeah. he has sort of this imperious personality. And so, you know, there is, you know, we don't know what to expect or what we can expect. And, you know, we've, we've seen mental health challenges for people who have been bullied online, who have been discriminated against online, who have been excluded online. I mean, is there a treatment for this? Yes, it's very, it's, it's complicated because, again, we have to start from the root, and that is families and childhood. We do know that there's an increased rise of narcissistic behavioral traits. We're seeing it. Right. People who are so full of themselves, lacking empathy. And I really can't help but mention the point previously. For those who are listening who are like, well, I'm not Jewish. I'm not this. I'm not being discriminated against. That's great. But guess what? History shows your time will come because hate doesn't have a doesn't have a boundary. So who's going to stand up for you? So it's our job collectively. Individually together to stand up for the truth because it could be us whether it's women whether it's um lesbian gay like whatever it is black jewish tall short discrimination is discrimination and it's wrong oh absolutely and you know members of the 2s lgbtqi plus community you know suffer this so much i've suffered it myself i've i have um, a former friend who you know um, decided to blame me for something. I mean, really, it is ridiculous. But <laughs> she blames me for a guy not marrying her <laughs> who had a girlfriend. And <laughs> um, because, I mean, at, you know, it, this involves like a drunkenness at a party and, you know, like it just outrageous and, you know, has excluded me for, for a long time. You know, like we've all been, but I'm, you know, it's, you can only, and, and it's this sort of perceived power that, that she thinks she has, you know, this ill-perceived power. But I mean, we've all been on the receiving end of people treating us badly and, and poorly. And, you know, and some people just don't have the skills or they're not, they're not self-actualized enough to maybe say, Hey, maybe I lost this, you know, I lost my mind or my, my control, my self-control, or maybe I was wrong and they can never admit that they were wrong. You know, and so like it's I think it's about how we're raising people in the world today. You know, I I, I don't know how maybe it's back to the back to the home. Maybe it's, you know, instead of everybody winning the trophy, maybe we do actually let the winners win the trophy and not everybody. 100%. You know, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I'm Um, old enough to remember when that's how it was. It was by merit and hard work. Not just exactly you you showed up, or even if you didn't show up, you still get a prize. It seems so. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, and and there's just so much focus on, and we've talked about it before on the program. We've talked about you know the focus of false beauty and the filters uh. on social media. I mean, people are not being themselves, and mm-hmm. it's just um, you know it's just extremely extremely difficult and and. I mean, there's a bit of a, a light with Brazil's election results today, um, yeah. which was which was nice because I think people are saying I'm not gonna I'm not gonna put up with that anymore. I mean, women. I hope women come out in droves in the U.S. for the midterm elections because Roe v. Yeah. Wade is a, is a game changer, is oh. a world changer. I mean, look at yeah. the protests we're seeing in Iran and also in across Canada. Um, in mm. Vancouver in particular, uh, the human chain across the Lionsgate Bridge. 
you know, people are saying enough is enough, but, but really, you know, when you see that percentage of discriminatory tweets rise in 12 hours after taking ownership, I mean, it is great cause for concern. It is. Yes. Grief. It's, it's saddening. It truly is. There's just so much hate. Yes. And it's just awful. It's just awful. Um, but anyway, I'm, I'm glad that you are willing to discuss this very important subject because I think there's a oh, lot of gladly. people out there. Yeah, these pe- there's a lot of people out there who are suffering, who have been on the receiving end of a mean girl, mm-hmm. who have been bullied in the workplace, who have oh, been yeah. bullied online, who have been gaslit, you know, who have been abused in relationships. I mean, people treating people poorly. It's, it's you know, it's actually the world's shame. And you know, it and it is. really has has to end. It's just it's just so horrifying. Anyway, mm-hmm. I, definitely. I, and yeah, you know, I just want to add, as someone who's had the mean girl in school, you know, who's been bullied, who's gone through that, you know, it's a horrible experience. But you know what? You don't have to be the victim. You can do something beautiful and advocate for what is right. You know, that's one of the reasons why. I, you know, come in the show with you, and I, I appreciate the honor just to speak the truth because there is such thing as truth, regardless of what anyone and, likes and to say. My guest is Dr. Tommy Mitchell. We're talking some of those uh, sensitive subjects. One of the subjects that I'm sensitive to, and you, you probably see it a lot online, and I was very happy to see that there might, there's a little hope that things might change in this regard. Thanks so much, Dr. Mitchell, for staying on the line with me. My pleasure. Um, we were talking earlier as well about YouTube is trying out, um, uh, that they're going to have medical professionals apply for additional verification. Why this is important is because there are so many untrained medical professionals in particular on Instagram, but also on YouTube spewing advice when, uh, the, the advice is not backed by evidence. I'll, I'll give an example. I recently saw on Instagram where somebody asked, vaginal dryness is a specialty of mine. Um, and somebody asked if they should be using localized estrogen therapy with a personal moisturizer. And somebody that has no medical training gave the answer like, yes, that's fine. You know, why not was kind of the answer. And it's like, you know, it is, Actually, the answer is it's fine to use both of them, but you want to make sure you use them on alternate days so that one doesn't, uh, the moisturizer doesn't render the localized estrogen ineffective because that can happen. And so what are your thoughts on influencers basically who are typically being paid by companies to promote products and dispense medical information on, on social media? Oh, this is a great topic, and I, I really feel over the past two years especially, maybe because we've been home more, it's been a problem. It is it is terrible, actually, because you and I, we went to school. We have licenses, cred- accreditation, experience, clinical experience, and science-backed knowledge, and people are talking a bunch of smack that personally is very damaging a lot of times, like harmful stuff. Like, it's out. It's outrageous, and people are, like, soaking this up like it's the gospel truth. And so many times I'm just like, no, this is so far from the truth. But people are just, 
take believing these people who got their degrees from Dr. Google or Dr. Insta. Like it's it's detrimental on so many levels, and there's no repercussions. Like for you and I, if we were to spread falsehoods or something, there's there's we we're held accountable. These people uh-huh. have no accountability. Nothing. That's exactly right. I mean, we are required by our licensing boards to do continuing medical information, uh, education, yeah. sorry, throughout the year. And you have to have a certain yeah. amount of that. You know, you can't say anything unless you can ev- back it up by evidence. I mean, we do some off-label things, be- but you see clinical trends, but, you know, there's a nuance. And somebody was asking um, uh, as well, another platform that I'm involved with, another project work that I've done, you know, why should... Why can't we have, no, why, did it, why does this position that deals with patients and deals with illness, you know, why, why does it have to be a medical professional? And then very shortly thereafter, somebody was talking about RSV, respiratory sensational virus, which is, you know, going up recently um, in kids. And they, they called it SR, SRV or SVR. You know, they, they don't even know what they're talking about. <laughs> they can't even get the acronym pro- proper, um, you know, said properly. So that training, that education, it's so important. And, it, and it's years for people. Oh, goodness, yes. And that continual medical education, like it's every year we go in and we train and there's new research and we, you know, we, we just dive deep. Some of us even more than others. Like I know you and I are both nerds. We nerd deep, like, because we're yes, passionate we about this. <laughs> I'm delighted to have my next guest on the program. I think this is an issue that affects a lot of people. Dr. Gurdi Pardar, Parhar sorry, is a, an ADHD specialist. He's also a clinical professor in the UBC Faculty of Medicine and has been in practice for over 30 years with a focus on patients with significant disability disabilities. He's held various leadership roles at UBC, including executive associate dean of the UBC Faculty of Medicine, and he's also been UBC's acting associate vice president of equity and inclusion. Dr. Parhar is the medical director of the Adult ADHD Center, where over 12,000 adults have been assessed for ADHD. We often think of this as a childhood condition. The Adult ADHD Center provides ADHD services across Canada. Good evening, Dr. Parhar. Good evening, Maureen. Thank you. Uh, Thank you for the opportunity today. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you back on the program. Um, Anyway, so great to hear from you. This is such an important subject. First of all, I think people believe that ADHD, well, A, doesn't exist, (laughs) um, that it's made up by by people, but, you know, there's a lot of conspiracy theorists around town these days. Um, But also that if they do think that ADHD exists, that it exists in children. But ADHD carries on in a certain amount of diagnosed children into adulthood. And then also adult, a lot of adults go undiagnosed with this condition. Is that correct? Absolutely. So what we think, Maureen, is that we think about 5% of adults in the general population have ADHD. And so 5% is not rare. It's not in medicine what we call a zebra or something that's very, very unusual to see. Um, 5% means one out of 20. So if you're at a party or a function and there's 20 people there, but at least one person has it. If you're in a bigger room and there's 40 people, two people have it. So it's fairly common. And you're absolutely right. Even though it's a neurodevelopmental condition, meaning that 
You don't wake up with it at the age of 25 or 35 or 40 or 50. You likely have had it since childhood. We understand that it's been there since childhood. Um, the earliest I've heard of it being diagnosed is even at the age of two or three. But generally, it can be diagnosed when um, children start kindergarten or grade one. So it is something that they're definitely with symptoms before the age of 12. But you're absolutely right, Maureen, that it continues into adulthood for more than 50 to 60% of adults. So the simple way to say it is that children with ADHD, the majority of them become teenagers with ADHD, and those of those teenagers, the majority of them become adults with ADHD. Now, there are a percentage of young people that don't become adults with ADHD, but generally, um, they, they do, the ADHD does go into adulthood. And, and you're absolutely right. That's one of the myths or the misunderstandings is that this is little Johnny or little Jane with ADHD, and adults don't have it. But um, certainly we're seeing a lot of adults struggling with ADHD in adult life. And um, I understand that people can have, um, that this can negatively impact relationships, finances, mental health, physical health. What are some of the symptoms of ADHD? Absolutely. So what we do is we, can, we sort of split them into a few um, different categories. And I think most people will think of the, the inattention part because it's attention deficit. So this is not paying attention to details, not paying attention to conversations. But your partner or friends will be saying, hello, hello, are you listening to me? And the, con- and your, and the person's mind has wandered off onto something else. Um, not... Um, not not being able to engage um, in in activities of any kind, whether it's schoolwork or whether it's um, a task that you that requires attention, doing tax, taxes, bookkeeping, doing paperwork, um, and procrastinating because it's just too much effort to keep attention or concentration on on the task that you're doing. So that's one group of symptoms, Maureen. And the other part is the hyperactivity part, and this is where I think some of the myths happen. You know, everybody thinks of ADHD as being quote unquote little Johnny. Right, little Johnny's in the classroom and he's physically hyperactive, he's bouncing off the walls, he can't sit still, he's driving the teacher crazy. And the teacher says to his parents, you know, go get Johnny assessed. There's you know, he's clearly he's clearly um disrupting the class and he's not learning as as he should be. And so that's the physical hyperactivity. But what gets lost in that is that there's that hyperactivity isn't the same for all children and certainly isn't always there and often isn't there for adults. What we see in adulthood um, can be the physical hyperactivity. There are adults, and you're probably thinking of people in your environment that, you know, they, they play with their pens or they play with their hair, or they're in a meeting and, and they'll say, you know, I can't, I, my back's a bit sore, I have to stand. Now, it could be that their back's sore and they have to stand, but a lot of times it's just that they can't sit still. I remember, Maureen, mm-hmm. even in, when I was in medical school, there were students in my class that used to highlight and write copious notes not because they ever looked at those notes, um, but because they needed to keep their hands busy or they would, or they would <laughs> knit or they would, or they would doodle, right? And now thinking back on right. it, now, they probably did have some attention and focus issues. But the other thing that you've mentioned is that the hyperactivity or is, is actually can be then sort of separated into a couple of other areas. So there's a tension deficit problem and then there's a hyperactivity problem, but that sometimes isn't always the biggest and most scary thing, is that there's impulsive behaviors. And certainly on your program, you've covered the dangers of you know, substance use and other things. And what we're understanding now is that a large percentage of people who have substance use disorders, whether it's you know, nicotine, alcohol, um, um, and other substances like um, drugs, opiates, and so forth, likely have um, ADHD. So what it means is that impulsive behaviors, whether it's binge drinking, binge eating, binge drugs, 
um, online shopping. Your, your previous guests were speaking tonight about you know the changes over COVID, and everybody talks about how we, you know a lot of people did too much online shopping. But add to that a layer of ADHD and impulsive behaviors. So you have you know online gambling, online porn, um, online shopping. I remember university students coming into me. Um, uh, during COVID and even before COVID saying, you know, Dr. Pahar, I'm spending money that I don't have buying things I don't need, right? Um, and that was some of the impulsive behaviors. Sexual behaviors um, where people, um, even as they're starting to engage in them, already regret them. You know, they could be in long, long-standing relationships and monogamous otherwise, but all of a sudden they're doing what, what you and I would consider risky sexual behavior that, that they probably don't want to engage in, but that's the impulsive behavior. The other component, and this really affects relationships, is emotional dysregulation. And we're starting to understand more and more that when people have angry outbursts or they have crying outbursts, often it's ADHD that's causing those emotional dysregulation type behaviors. When I'm giving talks on this, I often show a picture of the Incredible Hulk. You know, at one point he's a meek-mannered sort of professor academic, then all of a sudden he's this sort of raging, angry um, um, beast, right? And so, and that can happen. And that really puts strains, strains on relationships. So we often have partners coming in saying, get him fixed, get her fixed. You know, home is chaotic or uh-huh. he or she is yelling at the, yelling at the kids um, or their road rage. Road rage is another one, right? Where they can't control wow. um, their, their symptoms or they get into accidents because they um, just don't have patience. Right? So it's not that they're losing their cool because they're frustrated over their life. It's just that they have this consistent emotional dysregulation? Yes, absolutely. And that is a component of ADHD, and we're understanding that. And the ramifications of of that, like I said, can be, you know, straining um, uh, relationships. But the impulsive behaviors, we talked about the substance stuff. There's there's a study recently that said 50 to 60% of people who are in custody, what we used to say in jail or incarcerated, Uh probably meet the criteria for ADHD. Because there was uh-huh. a, a, an impulsive behavior that happened and something that they wish they hadn't done, but in that split, five minutes, ten minutes, split second, right. they made a decision to do something and now it's going to impact them for the rest of their lives. Yeah. Right, exactly. Um, it, it's just amazing. And, and the other thing that I wanted to ask you about was the hyper-focus. Now, you see, you know, sometimes kids or even adults, they can, you know, the house can be falling down around them and they are just hyper-focused on whatever it is that they're doing. And it can be for hours. So is that another symptom of ADHD? Exactly. And that's one of the classic myths, right? Parents will come in and say, there's no way my kid has ADHD. He can play video games for 14 hours straight. So if he can Uh focus on that video game, he has no problems with attention. And what they don't realize is that, in fact, is a symptom of ADHD, is the hyper-focusing. And I I love the way you phrased that, Maureen. The world could be falling down around you, but... (laughs) But you're, but you're focusing on the task that's right in front of you, right? And so when we talk about hyper-focusing, which, and obviously, I mean, most of the success books and, you know, productivity books and guides will say, we need to focus on something and have undistracted time to do our tasks properly and be productive and successful. But what happens with, and that's, and that's a good thing, but what happens with people with ADHD hyper-focus is they actually put these blinders on and they don't, they turn off the rest of the world. So what you're supposed to be doing is, yes, focus on your task, but still be aware of your surroundings, be aware of what time it is, be aware that you have to get right. up and eat, go to the bathroom. There's a fire in the house. You better leave. 
<laughs> exactly. <laughs> Time but to what, go. What happens with people? Exactly. And so what people what happens with ADHD and patients who have hyperfocusing is that, it, that they focus on something at the cost of everything else, and that's not healthy. So in a way, right. when we look at PET scans of the brain, um, and as you know, a PET scan shows um, cellular activity going on in different parts of the brain, there's parts of the brain that have less activity, and so that, that's addressing the inattention part and not being able to focus. Then there's parts of the brain that light up more, and that's where we understand that, that they're actually focusing too much or hyper-focusing on some tasks. Mm-hmm. Now, um, I, I want to have you hang on. Um, we're going to go to break shortly, but um, is there treatment and is the only treatment medication? A brilliant question. So in our center, in our philosophy is medications, and you had somebody talking about hypertension earlier today uh, or tonight, but is that just like with hypertension, the medications are sort of a last resort. We want people to do lifestyle changes, coaching, putting systems around themselves so that they can succeed. The medications are a last resort, but if everything else doesn't work, whether it's ADHD counseling, ADHD coaching, um, there's things called body, body doubling, where you have somebody sort of doing things similar to you to hold you accountable, um, putting in schedules and routines, regular diet and exercise um, sort of behaviors. And if all that doesn't work, we find it works amazingly well, then the medications are the next resort. Now, the good thing about ADHD are, are that 80 to 90% of people respond very well to the medications. So if you do need to go to the medications, they do work and the success is pretty, pretty high. Uh, but are there side effects to some of those medications? And and my other question was, um, if, uh, you know, you say it's genetic or it's familial, you know, if, if the house has no schedule and if there's no, you know, organization and there's no rules and, you know, kids can stay up till two in the morning on their, on their computers, um, you know, is it more likely, you know, making those changes, will that help if a parent who probably has ADHD themselves... <laughs> Um, yeah, but and, you know, and, it's, it's, yeah, it's treating it's, the whole it's, family. It's what we call exactly. It's it's what we call the double whammy, right? It's what the pediatrician or the family physician or nurse practitioner saying to the to the parents of the child with ADHD. You know, you need to put in structures and schedules and a whiteboard and and um, you know follow these routines and so forth. And that's great. But if the parent has ADHD and they've never had a structure or schedule or routine, how are they possibly right. going to put that in place for their child? Right. So you're absolutely right. And, and so and so those routines and schedules are extremely important and they are they, they will define success. And the better the, the the better you are able to put those in either in adulthood or for your children, um, that, that will help. Um, now, in terms of your other question around the medications, the medications sort of fall into two families. There's a, um, a, a stimulant group of medications um, and those stimulant medications work well. And that's what the Canadian practice guidelines say are first line. So first line treatment for ADHD are stimulant medications once a day dosing, so you take them in the morning and they work all day and they tend to work really well. The second group are non-stimulants. So people do get some side effects from stimulants and you can, you can get some side effects to anything, but if there are side mm-hmm. effects to the stimulants, there are non-stimulant medications that you can use as well. Um, but like okay. I said, with, and, and like we started out by saying the medications are a sort of a last resort after you've exhausted the non-medication strategies. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week.